This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, Law School Show listeners. David here. I hope you're all having an enjoyable summer. In this episode, I chat with Timothy Sullivan, a family lawyer and civil litigator in Ottawa. We had a wide-ranging discussion involving numerous subjects. Some of the things we discussed include his journey from law school to practicing family law and civil litigation, the challenge of starting your own sole practice, and his views on where legal services are heading. We also talked about many other subjects, so please have a listen. If you're considering practicing family law or civil litigation, or if you're wondering about starting your own solo practice, this episode is for you. Enjoy. Tell me about yourself without talking about the law. I'm a father of two, a husband of one, and I own a dog. Oh. I'm originally from northern Ontario, Timmins. Okay. I left there when I was about 19 for school. I went back for summers and I worked in the mines. Okay. And I went back again uh, for an election in 93 when I worked on that. In Timmins? In Timmins. Okay. And then I ended up moving to Ottawa, worked on the hill there for a little while, and went to school after that, to grad school, and ended up in law school, and the rest is history okay. without talking about the law. <laughs> Now you went to law. You went to Windsor Law School. Yes. So, what experience from law school law school spurred you to become a family lawyer and a civil litigator? Well, nothing in particular at Windsor. Windsor is a good school. Uh, I enjoyed my time there. Uh, I got into family law mostly because of my first job. When I was called, I got an interview with a law firm that was looking for a family law lawyer with the opportunity of practicing anything else. So they needed a family law lawyer and I thought I could get that accomplished. And I was able to also practice at that time some criminal litigation and some civil litigation. And I did a little bit else. A little bit, a few other things like real estate. I see. But the family, well, the civil litigation side, which is family and civil, uh, stuck. I got out of practicing criminal, and I didn't do much real estate at all. So you're saying your first job, as in your first real first job after articling? First job as a lawyer. First job as a lawyer. I started on February twenty fifth, two thousand and (laughs) two. Wow. That's almost, that's 14 years. Congrats, that's good. So, did you do anything during the summers during law school? I was fortunate enough to have a job with Pro Bono Students Canada. Oh, cool. I was a coordinator. That was a part-time job throughout the year and a full-time job in the summer. Okay. But during that summer job, you didn't touch any, what, what sort of stuff did you do? Well, the Pro Bono Students Canada work is, it was new then, I think it's developed and matured since I was involved in it. But my job was to bring lawyers together with law students to do legal work for community organizations. So my job was to really find the three. 
Okay. I needed community organizations to have jobs available for law students, and right. I needed a lawyer to supervise the law student doing whatever that legal task was for that community organization. Community organization broadly defined mostly as uh, charitable organizations, but it could have been other non-charitable, uh, not-for-profit organizations. And so after moving on from law school and starting your own practice, you mentioned that at the beginning you had many different practices going on. So how did you rule out other areas of law and focus on family and civil litigation? Well, I would recommend starting as broadly as possible in any event. I had an interest in criminal law. I had an interest in civil litigation, and I needed to do the family law work. Okay. And to me, practicing in the courts, whether it's family or civil or criminal, is mostly the same. Certainly mm -hmm. the same skill set is required. Uh, the knowledge base is different. Mm -hmm. And I found as time went on, uh, these choices select me rather than me selecting them. Every lawyer in the office did real estate. I found real estate and litigation didn't go that well together because with the real estate, you have to be in the office, often on a Friday or at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. um, in where I practiced, uh, family court motion date or civil court date was on Fridays as well. Okay. So it was difficult to accomplish yeah, a closing yeah, yeah. and uh, being <laughs> court at the same time. And they require different skill sets. Right. So somebody doing real estate and doing litigation are really drawing from two very different areas of uh, their skill set. Right. Litigation, I always found, is pulling people apart from something like I'm extracting right. money or uh, or custody or access from somebody in real estate and generally what I would call solicitor practice you're bringing people together you're closing a mm. real estate transaction or a business deal you're bringing them together but in the litigation you're you're pulling them apart would that would that be the primary factor in why you became a civil litigator and a family lawyer because you were thinking of solving problems rather than in a solicitor which tries to well, defend them? Yeah, no, the solicitors are, are solving problems in order to accomplish the task of closing the deal. Right. Uh, litigation is solving a, a problem by trying to avoid litigation for one thing. Right, right. I mean, there's nothing really stopping you from reaching agreements while you're in litigation mode. It could be a separation agreement. It could be minutes of settlement. It could be a consent order. So... I, I don't want to define it too too uh, strictly as saying that you're just pulling people apart. You're not. You're, you're, you're getting something out of them mm -hmm. that they don't want to part with. But in, a, in solicitor's work, you're putting two people together that have a common goal of one taking possession of a house and one giving up possession of ours right. voluntarily. Right. In litigation, it's not always so voluntary. Mm -hmm. So that's how I might uh, might describe how those two things are different. They're still solving the problems. I think my personality would lend itself more to the litigation side than the solicitor's side. 
that's all I, all I can really say is uh, they're different skill sets. You enjoy one area of practice maybe more than the other. I wasn't enjoying real estate. Uh, others in the office were practicing real estate, so it wasn't necessary for me to have a real estate practice in order to be successful. I see. Now, starting off in family law and in civil litigation, what's was the biggest challenge you had to face starting out? Well, I didn't get a whole lot of mentorship at the start. So in law school, you practice, uh, you uh, learn the academics, you know what a contract is, but you don't really see that. You don't, okay. You're not um, meeting with clients and you're not getting into the rough and tumble world of dealing with court staff, dealing with opposing counsel everything that goes along with the actual practice of law. So I didn't have a lot of individual or area-specific mentorship in the office I went to. Where I had articled, I was on my own a lot, and I worked pretty hard. I had long hours, and I was entrusted with a great deal of uh, work, preparing motions, for example, so arguing motions. Uh, a lot of my... Uh, contemporaries, a lot of my peers, people I knew that were uh, also articling, didn't really have a lot of that experience uh, that I was able to enjoy. I think it prepared me a lot for where I ended up in my first job, which was in a firm, but I would say largely on my own. I didn't I have see. the mentorship in that firm, so I had to go out and find mentors. I found somebody who knew a bit about employment law so I'd mm. able to call him when I had an employment law question I found somebody who did some criminal law who was able to be on the other end of the phone to help me through some criminal issues when I was first practicing as a defense lawyer mm. I had somebody on the line to deal with some commercial material like construction lien or debt collection or or some corporate litigation so I found, went out and found these mentors who some charged me and some didn't. I see. Uh, some would have the time to sit down with me and go over some really fine details of some work and give me some strategies for, say, uh, a, law, a lawsuit or even a trial. And some would charge me and either I paid for that myself or I passed it on to the client in some way just because they benefited from it. But it was good to have a source to bounce off ideas or to have some insight and just some practical uh, some practical input who had been in the practice for a while. I might have known the law, but you know sometimes the rules are there in black right, and white, right. but they're not always followed uh, uh, to the T. I see. So you mentioned that Law school, the law school experience for you was more theoretical, but I'm curious, in your law school experience, was there any sort of courses or programs that you participated in that helped you as you started your practice? The school offered trial advocacy, so there was civil trial advocacy and criminal trial advocacy. I didn't take those. Okay. Uh, the logic of getting into some of those courses is tough. I see. You have to be in third year to take a priority, and then it, you have to have certain uh, prerequisites. And uh, the school was uh, 
I think he spent the first year learning how to take courses oh. for the second and third year. <laughs> That's true. It was, uh, some of the logic of it was uh, quite, uh, quite difficult to uh, navigate. Uh, but uh, eventually, you know, you're in there um, taking the courses that you need and some of the courses you want. There was the community legal aid was a legal clinic that uh, offered time for students to do some practical work, some small claims and some uh, quasi-criminal and some criminal work. Okay. So I gave you exposure to clients, I gave you exposure to legal research, I gave you exposure to court. Right. Any courses? I know that courses generally are very theoretical, but would there be any courses you would recommend a law student to take? I think every student should be obligated to take evidence. I don't think it's mandatory in every school. Not in not at the University of Ottawa, no. Uh, it was once, I had heard. Hmm. But I think evidence is important because it permeates every area of law, even if how to avoid getting into trouble, you might want to know what would be uh, evidence before you go into a discussion with somebody. Uh, just talking to a to a client, you don't want to become the witness. Like You have okay. to know what it is you're doing. When you're talking to witnesses, you want to be able to not be the person that is going to ratify or certify what was said because then that makes you a witness. You have to know the rules of evidence in order to avoid becoming a witness. I see. That's, that's, that's fantastic advice for those law students who are considering a family or civil litigation career. I think uh, the evidence applies to commercial transactions or in the solicitor's work because mm -hmm. uh, you need to know what documents are going to be important if they ever end up in court, uh, just even tendering on a real estate transaction. That's evidence, the tendering of documents to close a deal that's not going to be closed is evidence. So there's a, there's a logic to knowing what to do and why you're doing it and to avoid problems with uh, ruining evidence or not having evidence sufficient to help your client if the need should arise down the road. Let's, let's move on and talk about um, your own practice. So you have your own practice in the city of Ottawa. And can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to go out alone? Well, I went on my own about uh, four and a half years ago. I was with a firm. I'd been there for about just over four years. Before that, I was with a firm for about two years. And before that, I was with a firm for about three years. I enjoyed my time with firms, but on my own, I have, I wouldn't say more flexibility so much, but a little bit more control about what kind of work I do and who I do it for. Okay. There's a bit of pride in building something, being able to uh, offer something to the community. I, I employ somebody, for example. I have to meet a payroll. There's some pride in having to do that and accomplishing that. I have space here, I pay somebody rent, right. so I'm, I'm generating right. some, uh, some of the, I'm contributing to the economy in that regard. Right, right. But it is helpful just that I'm, uh, I'm the boss. <laughs> uh, my clients are the boss, but uh, after that, I'm the boss. And your name is out there. Yeah, it, it, there's a certain pride in, of ownership, 
but there's a lot of obligation that goes along with that. I was surprised at how much administration there was. I don't mind doing the administration. I'm just surprised at how much there is. There's a lot of reporting requirements to the Law Society. There's uh, a whole bunch of tax reporting to the CRA or to for HST and, okay. um, hmm. and uh, document keeping for just my mileage in my car. I mean, uh, oh wow, there's uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, it's interesting. I I've learned a lot. Uh, I don't mind doing it. There's just a lot of it which is non-billable. I see. So then why did you, because it sounds like a sole practice can be difficult to begin. So why did you start a sole practice anyway? I had come to the conclusion on uh, amicable basis with my former firm that I had probably reached the end of my interest or usefulness there. I just had decided that I wasn't interested in going on much longer with them. Uh, it wasn't, uh, at, at, at the start, it wasn't an acrimonious departure. It was, you know, I think I'm going to move on on my own. What what do you have to say about that? And uh, we reached an agreement on, on a departure. Uh, I got a lot of help in leaving. I didn't have anything set up. I uh, wasn't kicked out the door. I was able to leave of my own volition and um, started up. Like I say at the start, on good terms uh, with all the firms that I had left, and uh, I just felt it was time for me to go. And the only option at the moment was doing it on my own. I see. So, what sorts of challenges then did you face early on? Well, I wasn't sure what I needed to do to get on my own. I had to first. I had to find a place to be. I used a friend's desk at, a, at my friend's office, which happened to be close to the courthouse. Got my work done there. Okay. I knew what had to get done, but they were mostly criminal law lawyers, so they didn't have a lot of the civil uh, necessities. Right. I needed uh, blue back pages, for example, oh, for, yeah. <laughs> for motion records. Um, so I had to really start from scratch. Uh, which was fine, but the challenges of getting underway were to set up not just a legal practice, but a business. Okay. And the decisions had to be, how was I going to finance it? How was I going to operate it? What model would I be using? Would it be a office front like this? Would it be operating from my home? Okay. Uh, would, it gonna, would I be paperless or papered? There's so many different ways to structure a practice. I had to really plan. I had a, I had an idea what I wanted. Uh-huh. I certainly had an idea what I needed. And it was a matter of putting all that together. So I found out you use agents to find rental space. Hmm. I had to find somebody who could do some printing for letterhead, letterhead design. Uh, I had to find somebody who could sell me some furniture and install a few oh. things I needed like a countertop here and I have a fridge I had to find <laughs> so it's a matter of finding finding the supplies so from a business perspective uh, I had to have the paper and the pens and from a professional perspective I had to be registered 
properly with the Law Society and tell them what I was doing and who I was doing it with. Sounds like there's a lot of tasks to start your own little firm. So I was curious, did you have any mentorship when you started up or did you have to find information on your own? I asked around for some from some friends I knew were in their own practice and not everybody's way of doing things was good for me. Okay. Uh, but sometimes the name of somebody who does design or somebody who does website design or somebody who can sell some furniture at a reasonable price. How do I get financed? Uh, I talked to a few friends, not always lawyers, but from a lawyer's perspective, I did. Ha I do have some friends out in the community who, who are happy to contribute some information. Uh, certainly, ones that were on their own and didn't and have set up their own practice or are partners in in firms, know a little bit about how some of that goes. So I did get some casual advice. I didn't have hire a consultant or anything to to do the day-to-day -day work. I um, had to fly by the seat of my pants. <laughs> and so as you started to build your own firm, what was your strategy in getting clients and putting your name out and establishing yourself in a community? Well, it wasn't a big stretch. I brought all my clients with me from all the firms I was at, and I was principally in charge of getting my own clients at those firms. I didn't get a lot of clients through my association with the firm. Oh, interesting. So yeah, that makes it easier to bring them with me. There are rules about leaving a firm, and I followed all the rules for offering clients the opportunity to come with me, stay at the firm, oh, or find their own counsel. And all the clients liked me enough to follow me from my first to my second, uh, from my second to my third firm. I see. And most of them came with me uh, to my new firm. And the principle behind client recruitment, I call it, it's different for everybody and it's an, always an ongoing job. Uh, show up and do good work is my philosophy. If I am in the office and somebody calls the office, I might get a client from that. If they call and they have to leave a message, they might call somebody else. Mm -hmm. So you lose that I opportunity. See. If you can get back to them in a reasonable amount of time, you might be able to find out if, they, if I can help them. Uh, do good work is to encourage clients to come back if they need something and have them tell their friends and family that I do good work and if they can send me their friends and family that's helpful. Uh, lawyers that send me some clients if I do good work for their clients it looks good on them mm. they will send me more clients. So show up and do good work is my is my philosophy. There's talk in the legal community about the challenges facing the legal service industry. There is new technology coming. There is talk, especially at my law school, that perhaps the traditional model of a big national law firm is not as sustainable as before. So in your view, as a sole practitioner, how, would, how do you see yourself servicing your clients moving forward with these advents of new technology and just new challenges? 
I haven't followed the debate or uh, the line of thinking on alternative service mechanisms, but I'm not sure it really means much. There have always been ways to cut corners. Uh, sometimes you can deliver services at a less expensive price. If you can cut your overhead, you can reduce your fees. There have been ways of uh, farming out some work to juniors or students. Maybe some research can get done at a lesser uh, price than a full-blown uh, senior litigator doing okay. some research memos. But I don't know if you have, if you can really change the model of providing a legal service to somebody, quality legal service in exchange for fees. I see. I got a call earlier today and somebody asked if I could break up the service I was able to provide. You're allowed to okay. say draft pleadings and then that's the end of your retainer. But I have some concerns about that model because I'm sure down the road when you draft a pleading, for example, if the case doesn't get argued by the client properly in court, they might blame the pleadings oh, and they end oh, up suing you. Whether right or wrong, uh, the very fact of being sued or, or complained against is very time-consuming. Uh, whether you're in the right or the wrong, it is still very time-consuming to deal right. with. So there are a lot of ways to craft your services. My way for clients is deal with me, the lawyer, on legal issues. And I have a staff, I have an assistant who can deal with some legal issues, but mostly the administrative side of things, booking appointments, doing some filing, doing some rudimentary uh, document preparation. And it's just a matter of going to the right person for the right task. Right. I tell clients, if you want to book an appointment, book it through my assistant. If you want to talk about the law and you need an opinion, talk to me. And don't talk to my assistant, because my assistant <laughs> will be nice enough to entertain the question, but may have some gaps to fill. So she'll talk to me. I have some questions. Now you've wasted the uh -huh. assistant's time and my time, because right. now i got to make a phone call and find out a little bit more. Had I just had the appointment booked through her, you have the telephone call, deal with the facts and question right there and then it's one stop shop mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so don't have to call me directly to book an appointment or to meet with me to receive some documents if I don't have to review them or talk to you about it uh, that might be a less expensive way of, of doing things there might be other ways but ultimately uh, the lawyer who has carriage of the file, the one who brings the client in, is the one responsible for providing good service and proper legal representation on whatever issue they have to that client. So if you're farming out some research to common law jurisdictions, maybe in India, you might be saving some money on some research. Okay. But who's going to be liable for the research? Hmm. So there are ways to cut some of the legal bill, but I'm not sure it always means good or equivalent 
legal services. That's a fantastic answer. I think many people will think more deeply about how the legal field could change. Now, another question to follow up with that is, some people say that national big, big, huge firms are a thing of the past and are unsustainable and that the future would be to have more smaller firms. There are firms out there who say that because they're smaller, they're more able to adapt. So I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on whether or not smaller firms are the way of the future or how do you think clients will want to be served? Well, I don't, I don't know if clients want to walk into a, a law firm that just has cardboard boxes for furniture. <laughs> but I don't think they want to walk into a firm that has Van Goghs and marble tops. Right. Something in between just says, you know, be reasonable. But you have to be professional. Right. Big law firms, I've never worked in one, but I've hired them. Uh, they have overhead, and how they manage that overhead is just a decision that they have, and if they're going to lose clients over it uh, because they have to charge more than somebody else, then the market takes care of that. If you're in a really small firm, you might feel pressure to take on cases that you might not be qualified to take on. I see. The Law Society allows some referral fees. I'll send out something in an area of law I don't practice, okay. not because of a conflict of interest, but because I don't practice that particular area, can I then ask that law firm I'm sending the client to to pay me some of the money for mm -hmm. having provided them? Now, it's fair to do that. There's uh, always a finder's fee in, in business. It's legit. Uh, but clients have to decide that that's a fee that they're worth paying, that's worth paying. Uh, and so there are rules around that. But how do you balance full-service firm and get specialization? Uh, years and years ago, environmental law was all the, all the rage, and there were several firms around that just did environmental law. Okay. There was a change in government in Ontario, and they got rid of a lot of the environmental regulations, a lot less litigation and compliance was required, a lot of those environmental lawyers were out of jobs. They had to find other areas to practice. So you can be over-specialized in an area. Interesting. Or you can be so general that you can't do anything well. So you have to be able to be nimble. Uh, you have to be able to adapt to changing legislative circumstances uh, but you have to do what you like, and you have to do what clients need, and you have to do what's going to pay the bills. Whether that's in a big firm where you can send a client within the firm to meet the needs of that client, fine. If I take on a client in my small shop here, and I can't do a particular task for them, what's my obligation? It's probably to send them to somebody who can do the job and is going to send the client back when when it, when it the, their task I is see. finished. For example, I don't do real estate now, right. and I can't close a real estate deal, not because I don't know how to. I'm just not insured for it. I see, I see. 
and I wouldn't be doing a client a great deal of service if I took on that task, paid my premiums and took on a real estate closing, when I could send it to somebody who only does real estate and when that client, when that lawyer is finished with the work, I get the client back. It, but they get clients who need litigation. Oh, I, oh, So they send them over to me and if I can help them, I help them and if I can't, I, I can't. What you don't want to be is, uh, is, and I don't, I have never taken a referral fee yet. But I'm happy to find a lawyer who can help a client because that's doing good work. That's showing up and doing good work. And down the road, that lawyer might be able to reciprocate. It's like a pay-it-forward kind of thing. Yeah. I, I don't do it for the return. I do it to help the client. And the client, I hope, remembers that it happened. And if the client is well served where I sent them, they might come and see me again and I can send them somewhere else I if see. need be to somebody who's equally uh, well serving the client. But if I send them to somebody who can't do the job right. and bollocks is up the file, then that reflects on me. So there's really a great deal of uh, ownership of the client's issues Okay. Uh, and you really have to maintain these networks, and you have to be nimble because somebody might be great now and for five years, but seven, eight years wow. down the road, maybe they're not as interested, they haven't done as many of those files. You kind of have to be aware of that so that you don't keep sending them <laughs> uh, that particular work when they haven't done it for three years. Wow. Sounds like being a sole practitioner, you have to do the administrative work, you have to make sure you're involved in the community, you have networks, and yet you still also have to do the legal aspect. That's a lot. So Yeah, there's a there's a there's a day job in there too. <laughs> there is a lot of there are a lot of balls in the air at so the then, same time. What's your day to day like? Well I, I can't really tell you how the day will be the next day, uh, <laughs> unless I'm in court, but then I can't tell you what's gonna happen in court. Uh, it's a mixture of administrative work. I mean I have to pay the bills, I have to get my accounts out. I have to follow up with clients who might be tardy on getting paid. Hmm. I might need to litigate if uh, push comes to shove. I have regular uh, bookkeeping to take care of. I have to be able to track my, my trust account. I have to service clients. They have calls. I have appointments that I might know about in advance. Uh, I might get drop-ins, I might get a call out of the blue, I might get a court order or decision out of the blue. Um, in the olden days, I haven't seen it very often lately, but I would walk into the office and there would be an ex parte order sitting on my desk. Somebody's moved ex parte to kick my client out of a oh. matrimonial home. <laughs> um, it doesn't happen as often as it did, mm. but... You can't know what's going to happen during the day, but I do have to keep a mind to the administration of the business, to the filing requirements of the law society. I have to make sure that my employees are taken care of, that their uh, their source deductions are, are paid, that they have enough work, that they're satisfied with uh, with the quality of work that they have. 
I have to do the legal work on any particular file. I have to respond to opposing counsel. Um, occasionally want to bring in new clients, so I have to do a bit of a networking or right. or some community involvement to be seen out there. Um, so just a lot of balls in the air, and sometimes you can budget these times, and you have to be flexible. You really have to be nimble in starting your day that <laughs> trial prep is not going to always happen between one thirty and 3.30 on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays uh, because you might be in trial <laughs> or wow. you might uh, have more pressing needs to deal with. A schedule helps. I make sure that I review accounts twice a month, that I pay bills, at least go through the list twice a month so I don't miss any hmm. uh, less than 30-day right. yeah. uh, payment obligations. Yeah. I have... Um, uh, I have a schedule, and I usually meet it within a day or two, and those are just the soft uh, targets. Printing the rent check, for example, printing my my staff's uh, paycheck. I mean, these things have to right. get done, and sometimes they get done late in the evening. Sometimes they get done on a slow time. Usually it's on the third or fourth of the month, but if I have to wait till the seventh, I, I will. Do you think that your working hours have been more now that you're a sole practitioner? Well, I'm pretty well organized, and I'm not sure that I've, I'm working longer hours. I think I'm working dense hours. I mean, I, I come in, I work. My practice has never been to bring work home, so I try to get it done here, have a list of things that I might have to get done for the next day, uh, accomplish the deadlines I need to for today. Sometimes that means I stay late. I see. Uh, but I do try to get home to put the kids to bed, and I do try to get home for supper. It doesn't always happen for supper, but I, I do get home for bit for bedtime most most days. In trial, sometimes I'll miss it. But wow, that's a lot to uh, digest for um, for people who might consider becoming a sole practitioner. And so the last question I had regarding this subject will be. If, say, a young lawyer or a law student came up to you and asked you what sorts of things you would do if you could start over to prepare yourself better to create to start your own firm, what sort of advice would you give? I might have taken more time to get the firm set up. I don't think I made any particular mistakes. You learn as you go. One thing I did learn, and I probably knew before I started the firm, was not everybody wants to do their job really well and on time. Hmm. I think... Some people try to kick the can down the road and get somebody else to do it or do it at a later time. Uh, I had some trouble, for example, with my letterhead uh, design and delivery, and like it surprised me that I see. the services I had expected of that weren't really offered, and if they were offered, it was going to be at a, a surplus price that I thought probably should have been included in the um, in the price. But in any event, you. You learn as you go, and sometimes you can learn your own business billing practices from the way some non-lawyer businesses do theirs. Interesting. Well, lawyers are going to, like some firms have very firm policies on billing on a monthly basis, but you don't always have the luxury of billing on a monthly basis. Maybe you didn't do any work for a client in that month. Clients don't always want you to be working on their file. Oh, hmm. 
because you're billing for it. Right. So if there's nothing, no strict deadline or nothing to do, in fact, for that week or that month, then you can't start poking your nose into the file uh, just for the sake of adding some time to it to get it built. But even if you do a small amount of work for a client and you run up a, a one-tenth or one or two, two-tenths or half an hour or something of on a file, oh, yeah. you're not going to bill for $50 for that month. It's expensive to get those bills out. I you see. want clients in the habit of paying, uh, but you might want to structure getting paid on a monthly basis even if you don't render an account so that your trust account builds up. So there's different ways to make trust sure it. that you have enough money to cover the bills and some of the disbursements for clients. So different ways to get that done. What I would do differently, I would probably try to capture more of my tax beneficial deductions uh, Tax might, he asked earlier about what courses to take. I think every student should take tax as really? well. Wow. Well, tax, tax affects everything that you deal with. That's true. Uh, even in your own practice, you have to know about your income tax and about your HST. You have to know how, in family practice, you have to know how tax affects the distribution of property, what you're going to do about uh Pension distribution, uh, is there a tax on selling a principal residence and when are you going to get sued because uh-huh. you said there was no tax but you don't transfer it for another year and you're buying a new house <laughs> and there's a tax down the road because somebody declared another property a principal residence. You have to know some of these rules in order to at least give some rudimentary advice. So I think income tax is important. But getting back to the question, what would I do to starting off? I would try to capture more deductions and capital cost allowances than I think I was organized to do. I started late in the year. I started. I, I moved into here in December, and I, and I kind of started on my own uh, the no, uh, in November of oh, two, which, oh, 2011. I see. And uh, tax. You know, I'm, I'm now closing off my tax year, my personal tax year, on at the end of the month uh-huh. in, in December. So you're kind of rushed at that point then because I bought all the uh, furniture and the, uh, the equipment and some of the supplies. And right. You're just getting into expenses and now you have to structure it so that you're able to recover some of those from a tax perspective or from a client or, or however you're going to be able to do that. So how you're structuring the practice, are you going to bill for faxes, are you going to bill for Sherlock's bindings, like oh. how, do you, how do you structure that? <laughs> you don't want to be out of pocket and you don't want to uh, have the client pay for every single penny of overhead if it's not a legitimate expense to pass on to I a see. client. Wow. Well, that's a lot to think about. And so you have a very active following on Twitter and so... I wanted to ask you, why did you start tweeting so much? I got into Twitter, I guess, in earnest uh, in about February of 2014. Uh, It's a way to stay active. Uh, It's a way to 
uh, get a, a following. I have an online strategy. It involves Twitter, LinkedIn, a little bit less of an importance on uh, Facebook, but uh, LinkedIn and Twitter are, are pretty active. And uh, I'm doing it in conjunction with a uh, marketing person, uh, a friend of mine from a long time ago, my undergraduate years. Wow. I bumped into once, and years later, I called her up to say, what is it you do, in <laughs> fact? And she did brand branding. I wasn't quite sure what that was. But we got talking, and and she offered a little bit of advice here and there, and then I jumped in and, and agreed to go with her full, full bore. And her advice was to become active online. So I have a website that I'm trying to keep pretty active with a blog. Okay. The Twitter helps feed that and points people to the website. Um, and it's also fun. I mean, it's an outlet. I, I, I tweet when I have an opportunity or when I have something to say. Uh, I try to keep it active and relevant. Um, I don't try to pick fights or become a bit of more of a troll. I think I'm constructive in the in the Twitter sphere the um, but all that online conduct is really aimed at eventually pointing people to my website I, see. I got a call I got a call today on a matter I always ask you know how do you find how did you find me who referred you so I have some lawyers that refer me but this one in particular stood out because she said well you had a blog on a certain subject and that's what she was calling me about was I that see. particular subject. And I was able to talk her through the circumstance. I don't think she needs a lawyer for it, so I'm not taking her on, but she seemed very appreciative. And I pointed her in the right direction to have her problem solved. And she seemed very appreciative and was happy with what I said, and I explained it proper, or explained it to her satisfaction that she understood uh, what some of the issues were that she had to keep in mind. And sometimes talking somebody out of litigation is helpful because it's expensive, it's time-consuming, it's stressful, and you don't always get what you want right, right. at the end. Uh, I just had to warn her on what are some of the pitfalls, and she wasn't so much worried about uh, uh, suing as uh, trying to avoid a suit she seemed to be out of the water, I, I, out of the danger. I, I didn't think there was much of a problem. But if something did happen right. to get a hold of me, and she seemed very appreciative, I wouldn't have got that phone call if it weren't for uh, my post on my blog. I see. Wow. Let's move, out, let's move to the outside of the office. You're such a very busy person. How do you maintain a work-life balance? I said earlier that I don't bring any work home. That's a big step Occasionally, I'll bring something home that I can read, usually when the kids have gone to bed. Okay. Uh, I just conscientiously don't bring work home and try not to bring my personal life into, into the office. Okay. Uh, the kids, for example, sometimes come to the office, but not very often. Oh. Um, I don't have to babysit here. So. <laughs> uh, or, or parent, as, right. as, as we would... Uh, more properly say I don't have the parent at the office but um, how to work life balance um, 
I get the work done during work hours, and I stay late if I need to. And I structure it so I really don't have to come in on weekends. Wow. Or I Good for you. plan it because I have a my wife is uh, very helpful in helping me structure my weekend. Uh, sometimes there's a time I can get away. I can come into the office for uh, for a short while. Um, I was uh, driving my son to an event close to the house, and I happen to live close to the office. So I would drive him to his event. It lasted an hour. I was able to get to the office, and I can do something for about half an hour. It gives me time to get back. So that might be writing a few checks or looking over a few bills, uh, giving some instructions for my assistant for, for later on, um, because it was going to be downtime anyway. Uh, there's very little I can do in that hour where I had to drop him off and, and pick him up so I can get into the office. But I that's just a accident of geography that I'm able to make it in. Um, I don't do a lot online uh, at home. I Even now I have to change my BlackBerry operating system and I can't get Twitter on it. Oh. <laughs> we talked earlier that I was yeah. going to try to fix that and I haven't <laughs> been able to. So uh, so even the Twitter is not something I do while I I'm, I'm at my child's uh, soccer game or something. What sort of things that do you do for fun? For fun? Well, I'm a taxi driver for my kids. <laughs> uh, they take up a lot of time. Uh, they're quite involved in a lot of different things. Right. So I'm happy to get them where they need to be. Uh, but otherwise, uh, life at home, it's, it, there's just a lot going on. I don't know if I have any real recreational activities going on. I try to do it, try to have some evenings with uh, friends and some dinner parties and that, but you have to often structure them around uh, other kids, families, and, uh, and make a go of a... Um, multitasking, having the kids play right, and having right. uh, the adults get into adult conversations. Um, I think uh, some R&R at home is really just uh, some online reading. Uh, I follow the news, I read the paper, um, I try to put that law and news stuff down and, and get through some novels uh, and do some reading. It seems like you really have that barrier between your work life and your personal life at home, and this is how you are able to de-stress. Yeah, I have some, uh, I take on some hobbies, uh, if it's astro astronomy, oh. I read a little bit about, you know, where the, where the universe comes from and where we're going. <laughs> uh, you know, I follow that a little bit, I, I'm not mathematically uh, too inclined. Uh, math is the language of science, and I'm it not is. really speaking it all the time. Uh, but from short of doing my own calculations on any of that stuff, you know, I like to read about uh, about those things. Um, and sometimes those books put me to sleep, which helps, okay. uh, which helps at night. Um, I'm interested in that, but I uh, I don't know much about it. I find it. Uh, uh, it takes up a lot of just to learn a new right, area right. that doesn't really impact me in yeah. in law. I'm happy to uh, to take on some of these uh, challenges. 
So you've been a very successful lawyer in your sole practice. practice. What characteristics do you think helped you become such such a success? And what sorts of career goals do you have looking forward in the future? Well, I think I'm reasonably successful in that I'm still able to practice on my own. And some clients come back and some lawyers send me uh, clients repeatedly, which is nice. Um, I think it's a bit of... I started law school a little bit later than some. Windsor is known for some mature students. Okay. I don't want to say I was mature. I was a little bit older uh, than some, uh, but I'm not as old as others. I see. I had had a bit of a career beforehand. I, I worked in politics and I had a master's degree. So I was... Uh, it, was it wasn't all... Right after undergraduate, I had a bit of life experience. Right, right. So that gives me a little bit of perspective, I guess. That's helpful. If I got into uh, other agency-type work, I'd consider that. Um, in politics, we used to call them the ABCs, agencies, boards, and commissions. I see. Uh, I'd uh, consider putting my name forward for some of those uh, or something like uh, like that as an appointment uh, it would be uh, more of a distraction or a change rather than any kind of uh, uh, high income worth I'm not going to the Senate but right. uh, sometimes <laughs> sitting on a, a, a tribunal or um, acting as an agent for an agency um, you get very low rates but um, uh, good quality work and, and something that might be interesting uh, I'd consider that. I haven't done much on pursuing that, but as I reach, uh, I don't want to say middle age, but you know, I'm getting to be uh, 14, 15 years out, uh, maybe it's time to consider a little bit of a different uh, practice than strictly uh, private practice. I there see. might be some, some agency work that's available. My last question to you is, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you be and why? Um, I, I'm inclined towards maybe financial planning. I wouldn't mind doing something like that. I hadn't really thought about it before I got in the law, but there's a lot of financial planning on the estate side of work that I, that I do. The family law requires a great deal of knowledge. Even if I'm not giving that advice financially, I have to know what I can do and what I can't do from a, a competency uh, perspective. The rules of professional conduct require you to practice competently. Mm-hmm. So I might know about, say, the stock market for my own personal uh, use, but I'm not qualified uh, to be giving advice out. Right, right. But you have to know where your limits are. You have to know what uh, clients have to consider and maybe who can give that advice, but uh, if I wasn't practicing law, I might be, I might be involved in the financial wow. uh, world. That's interesting. Well, Mr. Sullivan, I want to thank you for your time. Your advice and your knowledge and your insights have been very, very interesting for me personally, and I'm sure for all of our listeners that listen to this show. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for uh, considering me. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, 
or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds.